Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Okay, today for our guest, we have Dan Roth with us. Dan Roth is a professor of computer science at the University of Pennsylvania, where he recently moved after having been at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign for many years. Dan is a fellow of the American Association for Advancement of Science, the Association of Computing Machinery, the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence, and the Association of Computational Linguistics. And he's been contributing to NLP research about as long as I've been alive. So, Dan, it's an honor to have you with us on the program. Not so much, though, but... <laughs> Okay, I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Today we wanted to talk about a paper you published at AAAI 2017 called Incidental Supervision, Moving Beyond Supervised Learning. Do you want to give us a quick description of what this paper is about? So, So basically this paper is a pitch to take supervision more seriously. So the standard machine learning approaches that we've developed and loved for many years Everything builds on on, uh, supervised machine learning, but I think that in many, many cases, it's actually unrealistic to assume that standard supervised learning is going to scale and that it also addresses all the issues that we want to solve in order to push forward natural language understanding. So, So what I was trying to argue is that we should think about this seriously and provided a few examples, mostly from our own research over the last few years, of ideas of how to pursue machine learning with other forms of supervision. So what other forms of supervision are you talking about here? So I'm calling this kind of family of things incidental supervision. You can call it uh, indirect supervision. So, So the standard formulation that we got used to is we define a task, we collect examples for this task, we collect annotation labels for this task, and then we can train. Now, in many cases, I think this isn't going to scale because providing labels is just too costly. Enough labels is going to be too costly. You require expertise. Just if you think about, I don't know, tasks like semantic parsing, even semantic role labelings, these are tasks that require per sentence, you know, five, seven minutes of an expert. In addition, I think that in many natural language understanding tasks, not everything is well defined in a way that we can actually solicit solicit supervision. A lot of things are interrelated and, and we want to be able to learn from one task about another task. And all these are kind of captured by this notion of incidental supervision. I can give you a few examples or, or you want to... Yeah, so I guess I, I feel like I've seen similar ideas for quite a while. Like I, I did my thesis on knowledge-based construction. And so like there, there was a lot of work on distantly supervised relation extraction that seems pretty similar to what you're talking about. There's like question answer supervision and semantic parsing. Do these fit into yeah. what you're calling incidental supervision? So a lot of these fit in one way or another. I see them in as, as special cases. In some cases, they're a little bit different conceptually. So so, I'll give, so for example, weak supervision or distant supervisions are also good forms of supervisions that we want to be able to study and exploit. The slight difference is that they provide direct supervision to the task. So if you have weak supervision, you still have a task, you have a well-defined set of examples, a well-defined set of labels for the task. 
only that it's weak in the sense that either it's noisy or it's missing sometimes and so on. What I wanna, what I wanted to focus on is all these cases where there is a lot of data out there, there's a lot of information out there, and there is the ability to extract signals from this data that are not, that are completely, the, the signals that, from information that was there completely independently of the task at hand. And the same data might be able to supply supervision for many other tasks. And, and really the data was there, the information was there, the task that you came up with yesterday has nothing to do with it, but still you can exploit this data or signals from this data to supervise it. So, so let me give you a couple of examples. So one of my first examples also in the paper that I still like is actually from work with Alex Clementiev, my former student from about maybe close to 10 years ago. The, the idea is, is basically this. You're working with comparable corpora taken from over multiple years, and it's reasonable to assume that reference to specific name entities, say names of people, follow the same temporal patterns over multiple corpora that, as I said, are just comparable, Russian corpora, an English corpora, you know, an Israeli corpora, and so on, just because some people or some events are hot, so everyone is talking about them at the same time. So now if you are able to tap into this information and you can analyze this temporal signal, which requires perhaps, you know, doing some technical stuff. So we did some FFT to analyze the temporal signals. Then you can exploit this and figure out that there is a signal there that is highly correlated. I like to think about it with the signal that you care about. For example, if you want to train for transliteration models. So that would be one example. So the data was there. It was generated. It's that just the nature of, of how we write text and then you can exploit it for multiple things. I guess this also sounds pretty similar to a lot of recent work these days on different kinds of transfer learning or representation learning that leverages other, other tasks, like multitask. I know some folks at the University of Washington have done what they're calling syntactic scaffolding, where they're trying to predict semantic role labels, but they use syntax supervision to help get their model into a good spot before predicting this. Yeah, and- I completely agree. I mean, it's related to multiple things. So, so I actually want to get to this issue of representation learning, which I think is, th- there's one other task I want to talk about, which I think is really natural here, which is what I call response-driven learning. But let me take you on this representation learning. I think this is a very good example of this idea. In fact, just to be an historian for a minute, because you said that I've been doing this for some time, the first work that I've done in natural language processing just after my PhD was in 96 on context-sensitive spelling. And the way we've done context-sensitive spelling, later on we moved on to do to use similar techniques for grammar checking, is you sit on a word, let's think about piece piece, piece IE and piece EA. You sit on a word and you learn from the context, the local context of the word, a representation of the word. So I can learn a representation of piece EA from context in which it appears, and I can learn a representation for piece IE. We've used linear representation. This is exactly the same thing that people call CBAR today, only they use a slightly different algorithm. And what you get at the end is a representation for each word. So we learn representation for multiple words. 
And now you just use this representation as a way to predict, given a sentence and a question, which word fits better in this context, you use your linear representation. This is exactly what people are doing today. And, and this is a good example because you've learned without supervising for the task. We've done work on what I call dataless classification, which essentially means uh, in the context of text categorization, given a news article, I want to know which topics it belongs to. Is it about sports, finance, vehicles, what have you? I don't need to supervise this task at all because I can get definitions or an understanding of what sports is or what football, American football is, say from Wikipedia, and I can represent this information in such a way that it will be used as a classifier. The, the representation that we've used in this context is something that is called extended semantic analysis, actually due to Gabrilovich and, and Markovich. Basically, what you do is for each word, you represent it as a weighted list of all the Wikipedia titles this word appears in. Very nice representation, impossible to beat in this domain, in fact. So, so what happens once you have this representation, given a document, and a taxonomy of topics. You represent both of them using this representation, and now you can do text classification without any training at all. So basically, I'm agreeing with you. This is extremely related to at least some applications of this incidental supervision are extremely related or can exploit representation learning in a good way, but it's not only that. There are many other domains where you can apply this. So one of the interesting application, I think, is that of, from our perspective, semantic parsing, but, but you can use it in multiple other places. So the idea is that you want to be able to take text and convert it to a representation that is quite expressive, meaning representation of some sort. Very difficult to train. You really need to be an expert and you need a lot of data because it's a structured task. The suggestion that we've made, and many groups have followed up on this, is what we call response-driven learning. And the idea is that let's assume that you have some weak model that you can initialize and it can convert your text to a meaning representation. Take this approximate meaning representation and execute it. Do something with it. Sort of invent a simple derivative task. For example, send it to a, as a query to a database. If the query gets an easy, a correct response, you can assume that your meaning representation was correct. It's unlikely this will happen otherwise. If it was not correct, you'll get feedback no. And then the question is, can you exploit this poor level of interaction, you know, very narrow bandwidth of signal that is very easy to supervise. Every kid can supervise this level of interaction, whether the query was answered correctly or not. Can you exploit it and propagate it back to produce a good meaning representation? So this is again an example where rather than supervising it heavily, you figure out simple incidental signals that you can propagate or convert algorithmically to a strong supervision. So what you just described there seems really similar to me to reinforcement learning. How would you distinguish what you just described from traditional reinforcement learning? It's, it's very related to reinforcement learning. Typically, at least in the applications that we've used, it's a one-round reinforcement learning. 
So reinforcement learning, at least traditionally, not so much in the way it's been used in NLP in the last couple of years or few years, it was a little bit deeper process, right? So you do something, you do something else, you do something else, and maybe later on, after many steps, you'll get a reward that you'll have to figure out how to account for earlier. So conceptually, I completely agree, very similar, and probably we can exploit even better some ideas from reinforcement to improve these kind of protocols. Technically, what we've done was a little bit different. So in the paper, you described multiple approaches uh, for us to be able to use this kind of incidental supervision that may be available. Uh, how do you think of these different approaches as a coherent strategy? Or uh, do you really think of them as these are three approaches we can, we can use to, to make use of incidental supervision? So are you looking for some kind of unified formulation for this? Um, that's really the, the question. Do you think we should think of a way to formalize the incidental supervision problem as, a, as something that people should work on coherently? Or uh, are you providing some, some examples and suggesting that people should find additional approaches to, to examine and make use of these, this supervision? So at this point, I don't know. I would love to know of a way to uniformly formulate this task such that kind of all this umbrella of approaches that I've described, we look in a unified way. So, so there are some commonalities among these, or at least among subsets of them. In many cases, we are thinking about looking at signals that exist in the data, doing some reasoning with respect to this data as a way to exploit signals. So if I see text that says something like, you know, the plane landed in in Chicago, it took two hours for the passengers to leave O'Hare. You and me know that we can learn from this that O'Hare is in Chicago just by virtue of doing simple inference and exploiting conventions in writing. So there is one reasoning step that we've done as a way to produce a supervision signal to this relation, say, or here is in Chicago. Many of these incidental supervision tasks are like that, where you look at the data, you extract some signals, you put, you do one reasoning step, and then you get a signal that you can use as supervision. At this point, I don't know. I haven't thought too carefully about how to, whether I can unify all these instances. Right. Um, so, yeah, after reading the paper, I came out thinking that um, the, the key message here is when I'm thinking of a problem I'm trying to solve, I need to think of other data that's related and it doesn't have to necessarily follow one of the three paradigms or the three approaches that you described in the paper. But yeah, these are examples of ways we can use incident supervision. I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, I can give you more examples and they don't that are not in the paper. And I think, yeah, that that's basically the way it is. But so, so as, as I said, my key goal with this was to argue that we have to think about it and we have to sort of move out from the standard direct supervision paradigm and expand it a little bit. Yeah, if I can give another anecdote. It was actually from you that I started thinking about this pretty heavily a little over a year ago. I was giving a presentation to the AI2 the Scientific Advisory Board, and you were there. I was talking about trying to learn a deep learning model for question answering on a very small data set. 
And you said something about how, how do you expect your model to learn English at the same time it's trying to reason to answer questions? And this got me really thinking about representation learning and these kinds of things. And a lot of the recent work that AI2 has been doing on using language models to, in some sense, learn English to then have a better representation of your text so that you can do better reasoning later. Your feedback made me a whole lot more excited about this initial work and I think is part of the reason that we pursued it. So, yes. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad this question helped. I mean, it's, it's a question, yeah, I, I think it's, it's something to think about because a lot of times we care about one task, but we don't really think about what does it really mean to, to address this task. QA is, is a good example here. You're familiar with Daniel Kashabi's work on QA where, where he actually tries to decouple these two and say, let's assume I already know English at some level. What does that mean? Of course, it has to be better defined, and he defines it you know, in some way, maybe not completely satisfactory at this point, but at least in some way, and then take this and see what you can say about answering various kinds of questions. Yeah, and in, yeah. in that work, you're, I think you're talking about this semantic ILP, like where you construct a graph in some sense of the language and then run inference using an inter- integer linear program over this graph to try to answer a question. Is that the work right. that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. That's that's. Uh, in fact, there's a series of work, but yeah, the, the last chapter right. so far is exactly that. And and somewhat motivated by you know very early work that people have done in AI on on reasoning learning and reasoning, where people have said, you know, once you understand language, you should be able to answer any question about this piece of text that people give you. In today's technology, that's not the case because we train on specific, specifically on this text. Uh, text. So we wanted to decouple these and see to what extent we can push this agenda a little bit more. So do you think that's a, a good way of thinking about this incidental supervision as it applies to NLP, that, that we're trying to get our model to learn English or learn, I guess in your, in your first example, you, it was more let's, let's learn about what's going on in the world and leverage that and not so much let's learn English. But do you it's think... It's true because this was just a, a text classification problem, so it's much easier. Yeah, so it feels like what people are thinking about today for how do you learn English are, let's use a language model or a machine translation model to do representation learning. Let's um, use syntactic scaffolding or some other kind of multitask uh, supervision. Would you add anything to this from your insights on incidental supervision? So, so I think, uh, so, so one of the examples I'm giving there is the issue of a lot of NLP decisions actually involve multiple decisions that interact. And Today's philosophy, at least in some tasks, is that you should do everything together, essentially solving multiple tasks at the same time, which in principle, we already know. I mean, we've been done. We've been doing work on this for, I don't know, the last 10, 15 years. If you have a lot of jointly annotated data, you can do. But in principle, I think a lot about languages, about the composition or composition, depending on which direction you want to think about. So. And some decisions inform other decisions and so on. And the way to think about it is that this allows you to make complex decisions with less data than you would have needed if you really want to think about everything together. I'll I'll give you a simple example. So 
let's think kind of semantic labeling or an extended notion of semantic labeling where you care not about verb as predicates, but also say about prepositions in, as predicates. So take the sentence, Dan slept on the train to Chicago. Think about this together with Dan slept on the train to recover from his cold. Let's think, so we have a verb slept, sleep, and we want to understand the arguments of sleep. We have a preposition too. We want to understand what relation is dictated by the preposition to. It could be a location to Chicago, but it could be also a purpose, say, to recover from his cold. These are two different twos, right? They represent two different relations. Now, what I can do is I can supervise everything, or I can say, you know what? The supervision that I give for the verb really constrain in some way the supervision that I give to the preposition too. If I know that the verb has a location adjunct, Chicago, probably it forces to to also be a location preposition. So these two are related. Now, that means that I probably don't have to jointly supervise. I just need to be aware of the relations between verbs and prepositions somehow, either using some constraints, statistical or or declarative, I don't care. But this knowledge will allow me to use a lot less data because I can relate tasks. So that's kind of a complementary idea to this notion of supervision, right? So I don't necessarily have to jointly supervise everything, but maybe I can supervise partly and I will know some things. So in some sense, you you could, one way of posing what you're saying is, thinking of this as representation learning. So if I have a better representation of Chicago that I got somewhere, that I know it's a, it's a location and a better representation of to recover from a cold, then I'm just going to have a, an easier time on this preposition attachment or understanding decision, right? Yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, it's, so, so it all boils down to how you represent things, right? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah, I, I remember remember a bunch of conversations. Like as I said earlier, I was I did my PhD thinking about knowledge based construction, and I I thought a lot about how could I use some big knowledge base like Freebase to do better preposition attachment, for instance. And, and this Chicago example seems like a natural thing. The problem there is is coverage is so low for these knowledge bases. But anyway, these days I guess I guess people are now thinking of just doing representation learning over a large corpus. But 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 uh, yeah. So representation learning is is crucially important here, and the fact that I gave semantic labeling as an example shouldn't distract from that. I mean, there is a mix in natural language between sort of the soft representation, typically lexical representation and other things, and and the more structural representation. There is still structure, and and we should be able to develop formulations that allow us to play on both of these and, and kind of gain from both of these. So this paper at AAAI was published almost a year ago, and I'm, I assume was submitted to AAAI even earlier than that. So I guess I'm wondering if you have any like further insights about incidental, incidental supervision since you've published this paper. Like, what, what do you think right now, today, is the most interesting part of incidental supervision to push on? Okay, so... Yes, yeah, so it's true that it, this is something that we've been kind of, or I, I've been thinking about for more than two years. You know, it's, it's in fact, incidental supervision was the title of Alex Clementev's thesis 
in like, I don't know what, 2008 or something like that. So, but over the last couple of years, I think other people have also looked at what I would call incidental supervision, even if they don't. So, so I'll give you one example, which to me is the most exciting thing that is happening in this area now, a little bit related to the example I gave you before, where we talked about semantic labeling of prepositions and verbs. So if you think about Luke Zettelmoyer's work on QASRL and more recent work that he's been doing there, so the idea there is to show that in order to supervise semantic labeling or any shallow semantic analysis of text, one, you don't actually need experts. You can ask very simple what I call derivative tasks, simple questions about the sentence, and they give you a lot of information that hopefully eventually, no one has done it yet, uh, but we are working on it, will give you a signal that will allow you to map text into shallow semantic representation. So that's one gain of incidental supervision. There is actually another hidden gain that I try to mention in my paper, but I think this line of work gives an excellent set of examples for, and that's the idea that sometimes we didn't even name tasks, but this level of supervision gives us names for the task or, or shows us that we have to solve this task. So, so if you look at questions with respect to sentences, sometimes the question itself reveals specific relations in the sentence that otherwise the community hasn't defined as a task, right? If I tell you, you know, here is a sentence that mentions a doorknob. A question about it might ask, might ask you know, what is the knob for or, you know, Oh, and as opposed to this, if you have a garage door, the question is going to be different because the relation between garage and door is different than between d- door and knob. The questions people, a- anyone who understands language will ask different questions about it, revealing different relations. So, so this is another outcome of this notion of incidental supervision that just by going out to the environment and soliciting information, that everyone can give you about the text, you learn things that eventually will use as supervision for tasks. Yeah, in the Penn Tree Bank noun compounds, I, I, um, just for the listeners, I'm pretty sure this is what you're getting at. So in the Penn Tree Bank, noun compounds were annotated as, as flat, like they didn't try to recover the structure of noun compounds because it's just too hard. Like how, yeah. how do you decide what which one goes higher up in the tree and, and whatnot. But it's, it seems pretty natural to recover this information by using question-answer pairs. And you can get at some semantics yeah. that, that no one has really been able to capture before, right? That's exactly what I'm, what I'm saying. Yeah, completely agree. So, so this is another example where I think I say something about it in the paper. You know, there are many tasks that we, we haven't completely defined. They are intermediate tasks, but they're really important. And this level of, this, this level of, supervision, if you want to call it, but but really indirect supervision, weak type of supervision that just ask questions. Everyone can do this. You don't need to be uh, an expert. We'll reveal that we want to be able to know this and we'll be able to generate representations that recover that. Great. It was really nice talking to you. Any, any final thoughts before we conclude? Well, thanks a lot. It was really interesting. And hopefully everyone is going to start doing incidental supervision one way or another. Yeah. Great. Thanks for the conversation. It was really interesting.
Thanks a lot. Bye.